You're listening to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. I'm your host, Richard Cantu. Please join me as I talk about World War I history and preserve the stories from the soldiers who lived through it. Welcome back, folks. This is episode 55, part three of the Ottomans. I hope everyone enjoyed episode 54. I'm really enjoying learning more and more about the Ottoman Empire in the Great War up through 1915. There's a vast amount of history on the Ottomans. Somebody could have a podcast on just the empire and it would go on for a, a very long time. I might have to think about that one day. The Ottoman Empire is one of the longest lasting empires. It lasted nearly 600 years. That is, until the Great War got a hold of it. <laughs> Sorry, that's my cheesy voice. Spoiler alert, the empire comes crashing down. Yep, that's a big spoiler alert for those who didn't know. And on that note, hope everyone's enjoying the holiday season. Anyone doing the last minute shopping? Personally, I think I have the perfect setup when it comes to buying Christmas gifts. My wife does all the shopping. And then at the end, we just split the total. I mean, when she said this is the way we're going to do it, I was like, hell yeah. I mean, what guy would honestly turn down that deal? I mean, I do have to buy for her and get a couple other things, but she takes care of about 98% of the shopping in that complete madness they call stores. I'm that kind of guy who hates malls. Nothing gets my anxiety up more than crowded stores and malls. It, it really is a nightmare to me. But uh, I'm hoping all of you are having a wonderful holiday. Let's see what I got for admin notes. Let me see. At the beginning of this year, that's right. I set myself a goal for the podcast. The goal was to end the year with 100,000 downloads. I hit that number... On December 7th. So last time I looked, I think it was yesterday. I think I was about one point. Was it 1.4? I don't know what it was. Forget it. Forget I said that. The important thing is I hit the goal on December 7th. And first off, it's always a great feeling hitting goals. And second, I really, again, I really didn't know what to expect when I put, put out that first episode. But I quickly found out after a couple more that there was interest. People want to hear about the Great War. So I upped the ante this year. I'll, I'll make another goal for 2023. Not sure what it'll be, but rest assured, I'll set myself another goal. But one thing I do know, there wouldn't be any numbers if it wasn't for all of you who keep listening to the show. So the real people that deserve the cheers and the credit is all of you. So cheers. And since I'm giving cheers, I might as well tell you what I'm drinking. I made myself a Mai Tai. Yep, I went back to Tiki. Here's the thing about Mai Tais. First of all, you want to go towards the original recipes. Maybe the Trader Vic's, something like that. But you don't have to spend a lot of money. There are some people who really dive into this and they go crazy on the ingredients. 
Some people make it with three different types of rums, and those rums ain't cheap. So you're talking, you go out buy three rums. The ang was it Angricor? Yeah, I don't know if you say it right. It's a dark, there's a blended. There's another one they put in it. I have to look at the recipe book. But I mean, you could easily walk into a store and come out $100 later just in the rums alone. Then you got to buy the orange curacao. You got to buy the orgeat. You know, it, this stuff adds up. So I said, you know what? I'm not, I'm going to try to keep mine simple. So I went out and got Appleton's rum. Perfect. The, all I need is one rum. So I got the one rum, the orange curacao, the orgeat, my fresh squeeze of lime. And I o- always use fresh limes. And honestly, that's been my go-to for my Mai Tai. And <laughs> it's working real nice. I'll tell you that much. Yep. I don't care if it's cold outside. I don't care if it's December. There's never not a time for tiki. All right. Let me see. What else do I have for admin notes? Yep. I think that's it. Let's do some recapping from the last episode. On episode 54, I talked about the conflicting differences between the Arabs and the Ottomans. After the outbreak of the war... The Sultan, along with the young Turks, set out to unite all Muslims neighboring the empire to join its holy war, better known as a jihad. Problem is, the Arabs weren't fully committing themselves to this jihad. The fact of the matter is, the Arabs preferred economic stability over war. But just like the Ottomans, it was inevitable they too would be dragged into this. The Ottomans got dragged into this, and they were going to drag the Arabs into this one way or the other. And the Arabs, they were either going to side with the Turks or side with the British. The British have only really one interest around the Persian Gulf, and that's oil. And I forgot to mention on the last episode, the Anglo-Persian Oil Company would later change its name to British Petroleum, better known as BP. So the Brits sent an expeditionary force to, to secure its pipeline and refinery, along with occupying Kirna and Basra before heading up to the Red Sea into Egypt. And also in the last episode, I went down a rabbit hole regarding occupation. I hope I didn't offend anybody with my statements, because the last thing I want to do is offend anybody. Again, I separate going to war, sending troops to fight from an occupation. I just want to relay how history has proven that occupations don't really work out in most cases. Actually, in most cases, the people of the place being occupied don't exactly want the occupiers there. And I'd encourage you to do some research if this is something that interests you or something you, you want to learn more about. Occupations are very rarely welcomed. The Arabs in this case have two scenarios. Pledge their loyalty to the Ottomans, which won't involve an occupation since they're already under the umbrella of the empire, or pledge their loyalty to the British who've already occupied Basra and Kirna in response to a threat on their main interest. And that's my recap from the last episode, which brings us into the Ottoman battles at the Caucasus and the Sinai. There's one reason why Germany was so in favor of a global jihad. 
believing this would be the most powerful weapon the Ottomans could bring to the war table. Muslim uprisings and rebellious behavior. You see, if this happens, the Entente would have to deploy its troops as far as Asia and Africa to preserve peace in their Muslim territories. This would relieve pressure on the Germans at the Western Front along with the Eastern Front. And at this point in time, Germany could use some pressure relief. Since the French and British counteroffensive at the Marne in September of 1914, this is what caused the halt and the trench lines to form. Germany's push for Paris had been halted. Germany was also urging the Ottomans to fight the Entente in places that would benefit its own army along with the Austro-Hungarians. Lehman von Sanders suggested sending five Ottoman corps to Odessa to relieve Austrian positions in Galicia. Berlin was in favor of sending Ottoman troops to the Suez Canal to fight the British there, in hopes of creating hostilities between the Egyptians and the British, hoping this would inspire other Muslims to rise up against the Entente. But the young Turks had more faith in its military than the Germans, who just wanted to use them as pawns. The young Turks believed their soldiers would fight and recover lost Muslim territories. Those territories they hoped to regain were Egypt and eastern Anatolia. And after they regained these territories by defeating the British and Russians, this would inspire Muslims to join their cause. In November of 1914, Enver Pasha, the Ottoman Minister of War, had a private meeting with Kemal Pasha, the Minister of Marine. Enver told Kemal that he wanted to engage the British at the Suez Canal in order to keep them tied up, which in turn would prevent a landing at the Dardanelles. Enver commissioned Kemal to raise an army in Syria to lead an offensive against the British in Egypt. Kemal accepted Enver's commission and on November 21st boarded a train headed for Syria. Enver then turned his focus on the Russians. He wasn't going to take the fight north of the Black Sea as von Sanders had suggested. Instead, he would focus on the lost provinces of Anatolia. Enver believed that a sizable Muslim population in the Caucasus would respond in favor of an Ottoman offensive there. The Russians had already initiated an attack on the Ottomans on the frontier of Kaprikoy. And because the Ottoman soldiers turned the Russians back, this gave Enver hope that his plan would work. But in all actuality, it was the Russians shelling their own soldiers which turned the tables on that battle. Enver isn't aware of this, but it really doesn't matter, I guess. On December 6th, Enver told Lehman von Sanders that he was going to lead the Third Army in an attack on the Caucasus frontier. Plan was... With the 11th Corps, he would hold the Russians in front, while the 9th and 10th Corps would cross the mountains on the left and flank them at Sarakamish. This would be known as the Battle of Sarakamish. With map in hand, this is the plans he laid out for Sanders. Sanders, however, had concerns. One being the rugged mountain terrain, and the other being roads not adequate for troop movement. And it's important to remember that Lehman von Sanders didn't quite care for Enver Pasha. He believed Pasha was responsible for the military being in such shambles when he was called to build a new one. 
So when Sanders voiced his concerns to Pasha, Enver just barked back and insisted these concerns had already been considered and that the roads had been reconnoitered. Sanders later recalled that Enver Pasha even had plans for marching his troops through Afghanistan into India when he defeated the Russians. And I think at this point, Sanders was just like, hell with it. I'm not going to stand in your way. If you want to bury yourself, go for it. Needless to say, I don't think he had high hopes for Enver Pasha's plan. So both Pashas, Enver and Kamal, went on their way to lead a ground assault on two major Entente powers. Many historians believe if they would have combined forces and focused on one, they might be telling a different story today. Enver had hopes that with his German advisors, they would be able to sweep through the Russians like the German infantry did at Tannenberg in late August. At Tannenberg, the Germans inflicted 30,000 casualties and took 92,000 prisoners. Enver was hoping for the same results at the Caucasus. I think Enver's ambitions were good. He wanted to, to defeat the Russians for the Ottoman war effort. Problem was, he often bit off more than he could chew on top of being arrogant. He had full confidence in his judgment and abilities, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. That's actually what you want in a commander. But sometimes arrogance will blind you from reality. And in this case, he ignored real threats that could have severe consequences. The fact of the matter is, this Ottoman Third Army was nowhere equal to any German army. And Enver should have known that Tannenberg was not the same scenario. Not to mention, Tannenberg was a summer battle which the Germans used railways and nearby bases to reinforce and resupply, versus the Caucasus in the winter with unpaved roads and unforgiving temperatures. But Enver didn't consider this. When he arrived in Erzurum on December 8th, the Third Army was roughly around 150,000 fighting men strong. That's a good number, and because of that number, the majority of the Ottoman commanders in the field believed by strength and numbers alone, they would move, move forth and conquer. A few of the commanders weren't seen eye to eye with this plan though. One of the Third Army commanders named Hazan Izet Pasha told Enver if he wanted his men to attack Russian positions, they would need cold weather gear, sufficient food, and plenty of ammunition in order to succeed. Enver barked back saying he was being overly cautious and this would cause delays in tactics. Hassan was relieved and replaced by a commander named Hafiz Hakibay. And it was Hakibay who wrote Enver in secret saying his men had reconnoitered the roads and passes in the mountains. He told Enver, that the commanders on the ground lacked persistence and courage and that he would undertake this task if his rank were to be adjusted accordingly. Super shady. On December 19th, Enver Pasha took full command of the 3rd Army. He also put Haki Bey in command of the 10th Corps. The 3rd Army had lost a commander, Hassan Izet, who actually knew terrain 
and was absolutely right about the provisions. A commander who was looking out for the welfare of his soldiers. They were now being led by inexperienced commanders with little to no knowledge of the terrain. Haki Bey had no previous battle experience and he definitely was not looking out for the welfare of his troops. The Battle of Sarakamesh began on December 22nd. So, events from previous episodes are coming together. Events such as the Armenian Genocide. As Enver's campaign came into Eastern Anatolia, the Ottomans found themselves fighting the Armenians on the front line. Remember, Armenian loyalty was divided not equally between the Ottomans and the Russians. The Armenians favored the Russians because it was the Russians who were against Ottoman hostilities towards the Armenians. And the majority of Armenians were Christians. This really turned into religious politics. The Ottomans wanted to bring out Muslim unity in the Caucasus. The Russians, by using the Armenians, hoped to unite Ottoman Christians to assist in their evasion. Before war was declared, the Armenian National Council put together four volunteer regiments to assist the Russians, and many more Ottoman Armenians crossed into the, into the frontier to assist the Russians as well. Needless to say, the relationship between the Ottomans and the Armenians was tarnished at this point. The Turks had some serious hatred towards them. Before the Third Army launched its assault, Enver Pasha believed his men were going to catch the Russians off guard as they were bedding down for the winter. He told his men to leave their heavy packs behind, only carry your weapon, ammunition, and little to no provisions because the resupply is in front of them, meaning they would acquire them as they took Russian lines. This is winter in the Caucasus. It gets into the negative 20 degrees Celsius range. That's about, uh, I think, a negative 4 Fahrenheit. That's blistering cold. Little to no provisions meant no tent, no bedding, no fuel, and only half rations. If you were told to march through the Caucasus Mountains in freezing temperatures to fight an enemy without proper winter clothing and food, how motivated would you be at this point? A snowstorm just happened to make an appearance on the morning of December 22nd when the assault was launched. The 11th Corps opened the hostilities along the south bank of the Aras River. The goal was to divert Russian forces from the west of Sarakamish to give the 9th and 10th a flanking opportunity. Immediately, the Russians returned fire, causing heavy casualties on the Turks, forcing them into a retreat. This was not starting out good, and now the Russians began an advancement. There were stories of retreating Turks hiding in haylofts throughout the villages. As the Russian Kazakhs, who were also Muslim, pushed forward, they would discover them in hiding. They forced the Turks to show their penis to see if they were uncircumcised, proving they were Muslim. With solid facts, they were Muslim. The Kazakhs told them to keep quiet and stay hidden. Ottoman Armenians, on the other hand, were starting to defect over to the Russians after the first day. The Turks blamed them for providing Russians with intelligence, along with obviously defecting. 
A Turkish medic later wrote about this saying, I wonder if anything will be done to the Armenians for this after the war. I've been mentioning the Armenians quite a bit in this episode. Most of you might know, if you don't, because of their actions at the Caucasus, this will be the Turks' so-called reasoning behind the Armenian genocide. I won't get into that subject any further. Again, I did an episode on the Armenian Genocide. It's episode 29. The 9th and 10th Corps actually did quite well in the first few days of the battle. The 11th Corps took heavy casualties by drawing from the Russian lines at the Arash River. This was meant to be a diversion, and it worked. The 9th and 10th Corps executed a successful flanking maneuver. The 10th Corps pushed forward onto the town of Altu, which was only lightly defended by the Russians. They even managed to take 750 prisoners. However, a big foobar hit the 10th Corps. Outside of Oltu, a heavy fog rolled in. The soldiers got caught in a four-hour gunfight with themselves. That's right. One side of the fog, the 10th thought they were fighting the Russians, and the other side of the 10th, they thought the same. They weren't fighting Russians for four hours. They were fighting and killing themselves. They suffered over 1,000 casualties from this confusion. But at the end of the day, after assaulting Oltu, they managed to drive the Russians out. And just as Enver had promised, anything left behind was theirs. Soldiers found food and looted anything they could get their hands on that could be considered provisions. At this point, the 10th was supposed to link back up with the 9th Corps to continue the assault on Sarakamish, but they didn't. Instead, they pursued the retreating Russians. The 9th, accompanied by Enver, made course for Sarakamish through the treacherous mountains. The paths were narrow and covered with snow. The men moved 46 miles in three days. And actually, that's not that bad. Moving a whole corps through the narrow passages of the Caucasus that is covered in snow, 46 miles in three days actually seems kind of good to me. I'm no mountaineer, but I have to think even a dozen people would have trouble doing this today, especially if they didn't have the proper winter gear as the Turks did back then. The cold air was ravaging the men. And I have to use a word like ravaging because nothing else comes to mind that screams extreme. They didn't have the proper winter gear. They were forced to sleep in the open without tents and bedding. It was a cold night in hell for the men. Come morning, groups of men could be seen huddled together, dead faces and exposed skin blackened with frostbite. Over one-third of the Ninth Corps froze to death in those mountains. On the 24th of December, the Ninth Corps made it to the outskirts of Sarakamish, where they would take a brief halt. Russian prisoners told Ottoman commanders that there wasn't any soldiers at Sarakamish to even fight. Enver's plan for successfully taking the town was becoming a reality. At this point in time, on the 24th of December, the situation was looking good for the 3rd Army. 
it really appeared that Enver Pasha's plan was working. However, battle plans are never going to go that easy in the Great War. Mother Nature is going to put up a fight and human error is going to come into play. Blizzards began pounding the mountains. Paths became impassable for those still on the move. There was practically zero visibility, causing soldiers to get lost from their units, which in turn thinned out the ranks. This also caused issues with communications between the different units. And then you had Haviz Hakibe, commander of the 10th Corps, disobeying a direct order to meet back up with the 9th Corps to take Serkamish, who instead pursued the fleeing Russians from Altu. Enver dispatched a communication to Hockey Bay on the 25th of December, basically telling him to get his ass back into the correct position. Hockey Bay responded saying he would join the assault on Serkamish the following day. Hockey Bay was 30 miles from where he was supposed to be. He and his men now have to cross the Massif on the Al Akbar Mountains. A massif is a mountaintop. The next 20 or so hours for the 10th Corps was pure hell for the men. Survivors described it as a death march situation. The cold became so unbearable, the troops lost all discipline, running mad, looking for anything that could be used as a shelter. They had been moving hours before this. The men were freezing, tired, hungry. When the blizzard set in, things got worse. Visibility was low. This isn't just an expression. The men really began to lose their minds, like Jack in The Shining. One survivor remembers seeing another soldier sitting in the snow, embracing it, stuffing snow in his mouth screaming as his body violently trembled from the freezing cold. Hundreds of soldiers were left for dead in those mountains. Many went insane before freezing to death. As bad as the situation sounded for the Third Army, the Russians actually believed they were on the verge of being overrun and went into a full-blown panic. They had gone into a retreat. Many of the soldiers were heading back to Serkamish. Enver Pasha couldn't have been more happy about the Russians retreating, but not back to the city in which he was trying to occupy. Enver called a meeting on the 25th with his commanders and German advisors. He believed now was the time to act on Serkamish before the Russians came back. And at this point, all contact with the 10th Corps had been lost. The 9th Corps commanders told Enver the hard truth. They were the only ones within striking distance of Serkamish, and they would have to chance taking it alone. Enver consulted with his German advisors, who urged him not to attack until the 10th was in place. Enver didn't want to wait, though. He knew the longer he waited, the greater the chance the Russian soldiers would start piling back into Serkamish. He believed if his soldiers could take the town now, they would have a roof over their heads and could get food into their bellies motivating them to establish good fighting positions. And Enver was right. Every night his troops had to sleep in the open, 
more would die from the cold, along with losing the will to fight. There's some historians that say Enver had a competition thing with Haki. His ego couldn't allow Haki Bay to take the city before him. Enver always had to be the first one to achieve success. I have to side with Enver's reasoning on this though. He was absolutely right. If they did have to spend another night in the open, who knows how many more would freeze to death. He needed all the fighting men he could get and needed them in good fighting condition. If they could take Sarah without a fight, this would give the troops time to slightly recover. However, in the end, Enver didn't listen to his gut feeling. His men attacked the next morning, which meant they still had to endure another freezing night in the open. The attack began the next morning. The line of attackers was thinned out from those who'd succumbed to the cold. The men were in no fighting condition. And the 10th Corps finally reached their objective at the railway between the towns of Kars and Sarakamish. However, the men were beat to shit, exhausted from the death march, and couldn't hold anything from the oncoming Russian assault. I mean, they even captured the town of Ardean, or sorry, let me say that again, Ardahan, but because their forces had drastically thinned out, they, they couldn't hold it. It was lost within a week. The 10th Corps eventually found themselves surrounded. An estimated 1,200 soldiers surrendered. The Ottomans actually managed to penetrate into Sarakamish, but they lost so many men during this. The fact they managed to break through didn't matter because so many lives had been lost in the attempt to hold it. Things got so bad, Enver suspended the attacks for 36 hours to regroup and reconsolidate what was left of his men. When the 29th of December came around and Enver Pasha ordered another attack on Sarakamish, Mother Nature had already taken its toll on the remaining soldiers from the 9th and 10th Corps. Between the two corps, they originally started with this in, in this battle, which was over 50,000 men. They were now down to an estimated 18,000, and those that remained were in no condition to fight. And here's an interesting fact. The Russians on the 29th at Sarakamish had an estimated 13,000 troops. So you think just by going off numbers, the Ottomans had the upper hand. Had they been fresh Ottoman soldiers or soldiers who'd been properly outfitted for a winter battle and given the proper provisions? Yeah, they might have made the situation really bad for the Russians. But the Russians also had a few things the Third Army didn't have. One, machine guns and mass. Two, artillery. And three, well-defended positions. I mean, just with the machine guns alone, this gave the Russians a huge advantage. During the evening of the 29th, Enver ordered one last attack, this time aimed at the garrison town. Armed with bayonets, the Turks fought the Russians in a bloody hand-to-hand -hand combat scenario. By the next morning, the Third Army had lost a whole division during this attack. The dead were spread out everywhere. Now, as I stated earlier, at one point the Russians were in full-blown panic, in fear they would be surrounded and overrun. For a moment they believed the Third, the third Army was going to swarm down on them like a nest of wasps. 
The Russians now knew this wasn't the case. In fact, it was their army who had the dominant advantage. So they went on the offensive. And now it was Enver Pasha's third army who was in a full-blown panic, in fear they would be surrounded and swarmed, as if the situation could get any worse for them. In the first two weeks of January, the Russians went on a full-blown offensive, driving the Ottomans back. The Russians recovered all of the territory they originally surrendered at the beginning of the campaign. And they went down the line, completely destroying the Third Army, one corps at a time, just wiping them out. And I keep talking about the 9th and 10th Corps from the Third Army. What about the 11th Corps I mentioned in the beginning? They were originally being used as the diversion turned reinforcement corps in the rear. After the Russians obliterated the 9th and 10th, they regrouped and charged the 11th Corps, killing many and forcing them back to the Turkish lines. Only 15,000 out of the 35,000 from the 11th made it back. To give you an overall idea of how bad the 3rd Army suffered, of the original estimated 150,000 soldiers who started in this campaign, only 18,000 defeated men returned. Two of those people who somehow made it back were Enver Pasha and Haviz Hakibe. Both returned to Constantinople and both didn't face any disciplinary actions for their defeat. And I say that because the other officers who returned did. Haviz Haki Bey was even promoted from Colonel to Major General and given the title Pasha and given command of what remained of the Third Army. But Haki Bey died of typhus two months later. By the way, I don't know if I've said this in the past, but a Pasha was a title given for a high-ranking officer in the Ottoman Empire. A title of an elite. The defeat of the Third Army had such a negative impact on the morale of the Empire, and it was so frowned upon, they wrote a law to never speak of it. And if you did, it would lead to an arrest and punishment. Punishment probably meant death. This defeat also fueled the Entente to make a push onto the Dardanelles and to take Constantinople, pushing the Ottomans out once and for all. But as we know, the Ottomans aren't done yet. A month after the defeat at Sarakamish, Kamal Pasha led his attack on the British at the Suez Canal. Huge difference between the blistering cold of the Caucasus versus the deserts of Egypt. Kamal Pasha wasn't shy about announcing his plans to conquer Egypt, but the British didn't pay him any mind. They basically thought he was full of it. Mainly because the British felt that even if Kamal Pasha was able to put a sizable army together, crossing the Sinai Desert would almost be impossible. There was very little resources for water, with no roads that could support an army moving through it. And say they did make it through the desert, if they did make it to the canal. They still had to face a large body of water that was patrolled by British warships, armored trains, and 50,000 troops. So the British really excused putting any attention on the threat made by Kamal. There was only one thing that could have helped the Ottomans for an attack on the Suez Canal, and that one thing was a surprise. 
Kamal didn't get the size of force he was hoping for. He ended up with around 25,000 troops. His only hope could be catching the British off guard. And if he caught them off guard, Kamal believed the British would immediately give up a section of the canal in hopes he would occupy the town of Ishmaelia. If Kamal succeeded, the Ottomans believed it would spark a large uprising in Muslim revolts against the British. And because Germany still believed this could be their greatest weapon, they were in full support of his plan. While the soldiers from the Ottoman Expeditionary Force assembled in late December of 1914 through January of 1915, Ottoman and German war planners began working to ensure the movement through the Sinai was a success. Supply depots were positioned ahead of movement every 15 miles between Beersheba and Ishmaelia. Inside each depot, engineers dug wells and built dikes to trap rainwater in order to provide water facilities. The depots were also filled with medical and food supplies. An estimated 10,000 camels were requisitioned from Syria and Arabia to provide transport, and telegraph lines were laid to provide communication. They did their part to ensure a movement through the Sinai was a success. And again, the British were blind to everything that was taking place in Egypt. They only got suspicious after a French priest who'd been expelled from Jerusalem told the British he'd seen 25,000 plus soldiers assembling in the desert. Curious now, the British and French sent pilots to recon. Problem was, these planes were short range only. They didn't have the capability at this time to travel deep into the desert and make it back on one tank of fuel. When the Ottoman Expeditionary Force set out on January 14, 1915, the British had no idea where they were at, what route they were taking, and a rough estimate how many of them there were. It wasn't until the last week or so in January that French seaplanes began to report seeing movement of Turkish troops. The seaplanes were flying low enough that when they returned to base, the wings were almost torn apart by rifle fire. The British now began to rethink their defensive positions around the canal. British engineers flooded the low-lying shores on the east and northeastern banks, reducing the total line to defend from 100 miles to 51 miles. British and French warships were strategically placed along the canal to cover all points of possible entry. Indian soldiers were reinforced with Australian and New Zealand troops, along with batteries of Egyptian artillery. On February 1st, Ottoman commanders were issued orders for the attack. Noise discipline was in full effect in order to catch the British off guard. No cigarette smoking was allowed, no talking whatsoever, rifles weren't even to be loaded until they crossed the canal in order to prevent accidental discharges which would immediately sound the alarm. Which, by the way, makes no frickin' sense. They had to bring in pontoon boats for the bend across the canal. Pretty sure they could hear the pontoon boats chugging away. Anyways. The attack was to take place late in the night on February 2nd, through the early morning hours of the 3rd. The main body of the soldiers would go through Ishmaelia. The day before the attack, a large sandstorm went rolling through. And this actually allowed the Ottoman and German commanders to move their men closer to position without being seen. They arrived at the canal late in the evening on the 2nd, 
crossing the canal took longer than expected. But by daybreak, the men couldn't see any British soldiers in sight, believing the area was undefended. As Ottoman volunteers from Tripoli began to shout encouragement to the other men, dogs began to bark in the distance. As a precaution, the British left dogs chained at intervals on the east bank of the canal. They were trained to bark at any approaching person. They were still using the good old-fashioned guard dog technique. The dogs started going apeshit at all intervals as the Ottomans approached. They were barking, stranger danger, all down the line. All of a sudden, a hailstorm of bullets greeted the Ottomans. British machine guns began spraying everywhere. The pontoon boats used for the crossing got hit and began to sink. Those who could swim saved themselves. Others who couldn't swim permanently went to the bottom of the canal with the boats. Then the warships began to approach, firing on Ottoman positions. And to make matters worse, planes began to drop bombs as well on them. But survivors reported most of the damage came from the Egyptian artillery batteries that had a high position on the west bank with full view of them. What proceeded on the 3rd of February was, any Ottoman soldier who managed to make it across the canal was either killed or captured. The British ships destroyed all the pontoon boats, then turned their fire on the soldiers. Because they had no way of crossing now, the Ottoman howitzers focused their fire on the British ships. They did manage to hit the HMS Hardinge twice, resulting in the ship lifting Acre heading to, and heading out to safety. The Ottomans then focused their fire on the French cruiser Requin. They managed to make several dangerous hits, but the French were able to locate the smoke from the howitzers and took them out of commission. The Ottoman light artillery had a similar engagement with the HMS Cleo. This ship took several hits before it was able to locate the Ottoman positions. It too took the guns out of commission. By that afternoon, all of the assault was repelled. The Ottoman artillery was destroyed. Kamal called a meeting between commanders, agreeing they had been defeated and insisted they pull back to Beersheba to preserve the 4th Army. Casualties compared to the Caucasus were relatively low. British close, took close to 300 casualties while the Ottomans had close to 250 killed. Several hundred casualties and it was around 700 taken prisoner. Kamal later said up to 727 were reported missing. He believed a number of them had died in the canal. After the failed attacks on the Caucasus and the Suez Canal, the Ottomans were determined to recover Basra. Enver Pasha assigned Suleiman Askeri to lead the assault. They commissioned him governor and military commander of the province of Basra on January 3rd. Askeri set off immediately to take command of his new post. Askeri expected that a successful campaign would heavily rely on Muslim support from Arabs and Central Asia, bringing life to the Ottoman plans for their jihad. Askeri arrived in Mesopotamia, and when somebody says Mesopotamia today, this would be Iraq. In particular, the area falling along the Tigris and Euphrates River. So, just days after arriving to Mesopotamia, he was seriously wounded during a battle with the British north of Kirna. He was evacuated to Baghdad. 
While recovering, he and his commanders made plans to liberate Basra and Kirna. But Kirna was flooded and impassable, so they felt it was better to bypass Kirna and just make for a push on Basra. Askeri returned to the front in April of 1915, even though he was still recovering from his wounds. He led a force of 4,000 Turkish regulars and 15,000 Arab tribal irregulars into the assault. The irregulars he used were the Bedouins. The Bedouin are, are Arabian nomads who live in the desert around the Middle East. They're tribal people who've endured living in the harsh desert climates for centuries. Uh, a lot of YouTube travel vloggers will feature the Bedouin on their episodes. I've seen several videos from Oman that feature them. Even Anthony Bourdain did an episode on them from Parts Unknown. So, yeah, interesting fact there. So Iskari assembled this force and was on the move. But they were spotted and reported to British headquarters in Basra on the 11th of April. 4,600 Anglo-Indian infantrymen, along with 750 cavalry, took up well-entrenched positions in Shaiba, west of Basra. This is actually called the Battle of Shaiba. The Ottomans took position on the 12th of April and launched their attack. Ottoman machine guns and artillery pounded the British lines. Turkish regulars maintained discipline, and it was actually looking good for them. That is until the Bedouin began to abandon the battlefield one by one. These desert nomads weren't necessarily loyal to the Sultan, and by them abandoning the battlefield reassured Ascari of such fear that they couldn't be trusted. The truth is, many of the Arab rulers... <clears throat> excuse me. Let me say that again. The truth is, many of the Arab rulers at the head of the Persian Gulf had pledged loyalty to the British in return for protection against the Ottomans. So, the Bedouins reserved the right to change sides if the battle favored the British. Pretty shitty thing to do, but this is the way they went about it. The British went on the offensive the next day, and after 72 hours of fierce fighting, the British broke through the Turkish regulars' lines, which forced them into retreat. And good thing for the Turks, the Anglo-Indians were too exhausted to make chase. Both sides took heavy losses in just three days' time. The British took an estimated 1,200 casualties and the Turks 1,000 dead. During their long retreat back to the garrison at Kamasaya, the Turkish regulars were harassed by the Arab tribals. The Turkish officers reported this was the same men that had retreated from the battlefield. That's a spit in the face. This was too much for Ascari to absorb. He couldn't handle such shame. He put a pistol to his head and blew his brains out after arriving in Kamasaya. The Ottomans would never make another attempt at taking Basra, and British oil remained protected throughout the remainder of the war. This also encouraged the Anglo-Indian Expeditionary Force to continue its attacks on the Ottomans by pushing deeper into Iraq. The Ottomans were forced to defend Baghdad from an invasion. And folks, that's going to be it for this episode. On part four of the Ottomans, I'll focus on the invasion of Mesopotamia. Thank you for listening and for your continued support for this podcast. 
Without you listeners, this wouldn't exist. I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Until the next episode, take care, everyone. Thank you.